if anybody tells you that there's a thing that they're promoting that will solve everything, that's wrong. That's not going to happen. So if somebody says, use this because don't trust them. And uh, also something that's very interesting is statisticians will always say, what you really want to know. If they say that to you, right, as a researcher, they say, what, but, but what you really want to know is stop listening to them. Because really, they're statisticians and you're a researcher. You're pretty, you know, knowledgeable about what you more or less want to know. Welcome to Everything Hurts, a podcast that covers everywhere the life sciences meets the biological sciences. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo, and I'm joined by James Heathers from Northeastern University, and a special guest today, Daniel Larkins, Associate Professor at Eindhoven University of Technology, and the creator of the 100% free Coursera course, Improving Your Statistical Inferences. Daniel, thanks for dropping in. It's great to be here, guys. I'm really uh, a big fan of the podcast. That was such a wonderful infomercial introduction, I think you have to <laughs> yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. You have to at this point. Going straight in with the Coursera course. It's good. Love it, Dan. Yes. He doesn't make any money off that, you know. You, I mean, we were going to say it anyway. Yeah, yeah. No, you it's can't good. earn him anything. It's, uh, thanks, for, thanks for advertising it. I'm not making any money off it, but it's still something that I think uh, will benefit science if some people will try it out and improve the way yeah. they do statistics. So, uh, yeah. I'm I'm surprised by how many places I've seen it turn up at people who have yeah. you know you, you haven't you haven't caught up with them from whatever lab years ago mm. and they have you heard of this Lakin's bloke and his course <laughs> yeah and yeah. they pop out of nowhere but yeah I have actually well how about that um it's, yeah it's you, so popular. you get around man yeah yeah how, how you get you know? around how did you get into this uh, topic area <laughs> uh, it was it was really funny I was was reviewing a um. Uh, a paper about a week ago and I saw a citation of yours I saw that I saw your name like surely that name couldn't be too common but it must be a miscitation because this paper was looking at um, psychophysiology methods and then I look at the reference and yes it, yes. uh, I look back and it was a paper uh, using smartphone to measure heart rate changes during r- relived happiness and anger yeah. which is uh, a topic that James and I are very much into ourselves how did you make the jump from doing sort of more psychophysiology research into the sort of stuff that you're doing right now well i i just jump around a bit i don't really have one clear you know topic i did my phd thesis on uh, something that's uh, very uh, heavily criticized right now embodied cognition <laughs> research which you might uh, you know sometimes you see it come by on social media not so positive most of the time nowadays and uh, it, it was a great introduction to uh, learning how to improve the way we need to work and um, yeah from then on i'm just doing a lot of different stuff i like to uh, get into a topic that i find interesting like measuring uh, heart rates with uh, your smartphone it's kind of cool that you can do it so um, i thought let's play around with it and then sometimes i publish this stuff it's it's just an excuse to play around with some uh, something i find interesting yeah so people yeah, are always don't, bit... stop giving stop giving our secrets away man <laughs> <laughs> but this yeah. all the all, all toy-based research starts on some level with uh wouldn't it be cool if we could <laughs> and then and then you fiddle for months and call it work yeah. but you know now everyone's gonna want to do it thanks very much <laughs> Sorry. there goes that Sorry. cat yeah straight but, out of the bag but it's always yeah look it's 
it's, Sorry, it's, go on. it's always fun to see that people say, hey, you actually do research. But I would consider myself uh, an experimental <laughs> psychologist, and I do some stats on the side, so uh, statistics and research methods. But yeah, it's been taking up some more time the last couple of years, but I still consider myself just an experimental psychologist. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, it makes sense. Now, for uh, we're actually going to do a... There's a lot to, lot to cover, a lot, a lot we want to discuss today. So we're going to do this into a two-part episode. And for this first part, we're going to be talking about Bayesian versus frequentist statistics. Now, Daniel, how do, where do you see the state of all this? There's, uh, it, it seems to be... Uh, you know, not, not a day goes past on Twitter where people aren't <laughs> fighting over this or, or, mm-hmm. or going back and forth. Where do you see the state of this uh, of this debate? Well, to be honest, the last couple of months, maybe I've been thinking that maybe we're overdoing this debate a little bit. So it's it's great fun, you know, it's great fun, and I see it sort of as a nice debate club, and I know a lot of the people that are involved in these discussions on social media. But um, I think some people think that um, uh, see it as something more than just a sort of fun debate. And uh, I think they're seeing it as something they really need to have a standpoint on or, you know, be knowledgeable about. And I'm not completely sure whether that's exactly necessary. I mean, it's good to have some basic understanding of Bayesian statistics and frequentist statistics, the differences. Um, but I think we're overdoing it a little bit with the, the, the fighting. And it's sort of fun, but now people feel that it's maybe one of the most important things. And I don't think that's actually true. And what's what yeah? I, that was going to be my first question when the when the bloody Easter Island statue here has got his sentient Malone out of the way. Why do we have to fight? Yeah, yeah. Well, well why that's, do we seriously get along? There's, yeah, no, like, no, it's not. It's, it's not question. that. It's the nature. It's the nature with which the discussion is conducted. Like in the in the middle mm. of in the middle of a broader conversation about how statistics should be deployed. Yeah. The the idea that there is a correct Mm-hmm. model which can be which can make sense in any given particular situation yeah is sort of there's a there's a not a falsity as much as like start the argument where it starts and mm-hmm. a lot of the time you're trying to you're trying to unfuck things that are pretty wound up in the first instance yeah i mean i i bet i know the answer to this but i'm going to ask you anyway because you might see something cool where's the situation where bayesian statistics is really appropriate and well adopted and straightforward well i, would I bet say you can think of one when, when you have some very good prior information which I'm um, sometimes, yeah. uh, you know, nowadays in psychology, I don't know what I know anymore. So I don't, I'm don't, not really sure whether I have a lot of prior information <laughs> well, about forget anything. A, forget about psychology and, yeah. and, and the people that dwell within it. What, what about uh, anywhere? Oh, anywhere. Well, there are some really, really useful applications. So it was developed during wartime, actually, when they had uh, uh, not a lot of information yeah. about signals and messages that were sent from uh, the enemy. Um, and then they try to decode them. And that's actually where uh, people started to work on uh, uh, really applying Bayesian statistics in very cool ways. Uh, but you can think of uh, missing airplanes. I know some good examples there. That an airplane goes missing and then they have some prior information about the flow of water. And then they try to figure out where the airplane might have ended up. So that's well, actually good. Where's MK70? Yeah, 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 for example. So, so you don't have a lot of data to go on, but you have some prior information. And that's actually where it does best. So you can combine this prior information and you have few observations, but that's that's where it really, really wins out. Yeah. 
So having said okay. that, then it almost sounds like it's being uh, people are almost overplaying their hand within psychology and applications where they may not necessarily have this sort of prior information. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, I think that one of the criticisms nowadays about um, Bayesian statistics, some Bayesian statistics, it's a bit over-advertised. You know, if people say that this is going to solve all our problems and it's great and people don't really go into the limitations, every statistical technique has limitations and, you know, issues where it works better and where it works slightly less well, maybe. Um, So, yeah, I think it's a little bit over-advertised. And I actually got into most of this because I think that um, you, you should use any tool that you want. So uh, I tried to uh, get into this argument in the literature, but yeah, I wrote a commentary that ended up as a blog post. And uh, the title was, why, don't we, why can't we all just get along? You know, I really think that that would be a good perspective. And I still, when I teach about this, I say, use whatever tool you want, combine them all, I don't care. Um, so I only get into the mm. discussion if people start to uh, what I would call... Um, bash p-values then I, I get a bit annoyed then i say hey hey that's that's not necessary so you can see me sort of defending p-values not because i think they're the best thing ever but i think bashing any technique doesn't make a lot of sense yeah it's look as um all of us all of us if you get to the the, the age where we, we're both obviously highly prematurely old um dan more than me um, obviously, um, but you, you get to a certain academic point where you're very comfortable with the vast majority of normal statistical models and how you calculate things makes sort of immediate sense. Not in the fact that you know how to do statistics, but the, the, all the relevant features that you'd see in 98% of things that are published is something you've done yourself at some point. You could represent them fairly well and you can answer your own questions. Now, as someone within that community of people, I frequently come along elements within the arguments that people are having about statistics where what I know about it comes to a scrunching halt. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. there's some sort of go, no, 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 but you understand, that's, that's, that's incorrect on the basis of the, the nature of information itself, but you've forgotten about the boiled eggs. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, might as well, it might as well be that. And you quickly, yeah. you quickly reach... Uh, an area where you're arguing about the nature of how things are sought on first principles and it assumes that you have a background in formal statistics, which very few scientists do. In fact, <laughs> there's not a lot of staff statisticians sometimes who have good backgrounds in formal statistics. I've met people who've got full-on actual degrees in statistics who think that the vast majority of stuff that scientists do in the first place is poorly specified bollocks. And they think that we're all uh, mostly terrible at what we do and half mad. Mm -hmm. So do the discussions get to a point where it's just... I I see very little practical utility, even for Mm -hmm. people who are perfectly comfortable with the... I get it. Knowledgeable yeah. utilization of these techniques. Yeah. So or I is think, that just me being shit at statistics? Because you can tell well, me that, you won't hurt my feelings. Well, I think it depends on what you know, and I don't really know what you know about this. I don't have a lot of prior information. You know, you can make some Bayesian jokes all the time. Smart but, ass. Yes. But um, I think that you need to know a little bit about what this debate is about. You don't really need to know the very basics of how uh, specific calculations are performed or whatever, you know. But I remember that when I was doing my PhD, we had sort of an understanding of, of this whole debate and it went as follows. Okay, we all use p-values. They're horribly bad. We should be using Bayesian statistics 
but nobody really knows what it is. So we use p-values, and that's fine. And, and everybody was kind of happy with that, because you don't have to think. This is the norm. Great. And I think that is not enough knowledge about this debate. You need to know a little bit more. It's not so difficult, but you need to know what your choices are. Yeah. Does that, does that sound fair? Huh? I hadn't heard, <laughs> I hadn't heard of Bayesian statistics probably until right into the end of my PhD. We didn't get any of that within um, no. statistics. Did you get that, James? Any Bayes? Uh, no, we um we got as far as I mean, even for an undergraduate sort of curriculum, there were bits and pieces of SEM. Uh, we never really got much past of the funkier end of Fisherian stuff, the vast mm. majority of which I have absolutely no utility for whatsoever. I think, I think that's also why I tried to make this Coursera course. So it basically contains all the information I wish somebody had told me when I was doing my PhD. And it's true, nobody teaches the basics, especially not in a way that you can understand, right? Because I know... I know what I don't know, and I know what I didn't know like a year ago, and uh, what helped me understand this thing. So instead of a very formal introduction, I know that you know most psychologists don't know the difference between a standard deviation and a standard error if you just ask them, right? I mean, they probably think, yeah, yeah, it's sort of, you know, so you have to help people to really figure it out in a way they understand. And that would be, you know, I think useful. Have some basic understanding is good, and then you can make an informed decision on whether you want to use it or not. But I think... If you have only limited amount of time to spend on something, then I wonder that this whole debate about p-values and Bayesian statistics is making young scholars think, okay, I need to spend my time figuring this out. Well, maybe not. Maybe you should study philosophy of science or uh, experimental design or causality and inference, whatever. I mean, you know, there are many more important things to learn about than uh, especially a lot of detail. Yeah, I'll, that's a really I agree. Good when it comes to experimental design, did, did, <laughs> something that I'm only just discovering recently, we're designing very small sample experiments with very, very large amounts of measurement over time. There are whole technical books written mm-hmm. about how to correctly design and analyze extremely small subject experiments because a lot of the time... Uh, especially within medical science, that's all you've got access to. You can't mm-hmm. go, well, we've got Terry, and Terry's got an extremely specific uh, lesion that gives him a specific kind of aphasia. You can't go out with a thermal lance and make six more friends for him. Sure. You have to try and figure out how observations are appropriate within the context that you have. But, but the, and look, there's and there's hundreds of other there's hundreds of other similar the, the scenarios, way, and there's a yeah. whole body of literature no one ever told me about before. Yeah, but the other way around also works. So if you design a very good study, then it doesn't really matter how you analyze it. The difference isn't so big anymore. So if you use Bayesian statistics or yeah. frequentist, it will give you probably the same answer. So maybe designing a good study and just sharing your data with your publication, maybe that's important. I've spent such a long time. Dan will tell you, I may have probably said this on, on half a dozen podcasts, that I went all in on that particular route a very, very long time ago, which is why a lot of my early papers are just reams of methodological mistakes you can make if you're doing physiological measurement. Like how mm-hmm. does it work? Mm-hmm. And that If you do all these parameters and you get everything absolutely perfect, your data is going to be so infinitely better yeah. than it would otherwise. This is all the, the so you can do anything you want after the fact, but you've got to you've got to kill your noise floor to start mm-hmm. with. 
And if you don't think like that, it doesn't matter how you analyze it. Throw it against the wall, throw fucking darts at it. It just, you, it's, it's not a, you, you can't, you can't fish things. You can't fish things out of noise. This well, actually, maybe Dan can. <laughs> there's actually quite a big debate um, within the oxytocin literature. Um, there was a paper that came out uh, about a year or two ago, which was looking at uh, sample size estimates. And it was making the argument that um, most oxytocin research is, is woefully underpowered. And um, that, 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 that's generally the case. Um, yeah. So it really went for the, we went for the juggler going, unless, unless your studies have 80 people, um, 80 people per cell, they're practically useless. And a cell for between yeah. subjects. Yeah. How so, many cells do you, you guys don't normally do two groups though. Generally you've I, got I do, like sometimes. dosages. I, I, I do. I'm pretty much the only one that does different dosages. But re- regardless, since that paper's come out, it's become incredibly difficult to actually publish Start, um, low uh, studies with low participants, which is mm. a good thing, but then it makes it very difficult for me to actually argue why my ones are okay, mm. um, because mm. I actually focus on reducing noise yeah, um, yeah. by methodology, um, yeah. by particular using particular populations, yeah. and uh, people seem to be focused more on okay, let's let's actually fix sample sizes rather than let's fix experimental design, and yeah. I would I would love to see I would love to yeah. see debates on Twitter about experimental design and, and yeah. less on that and. And yes. sorry, less Bayes versus p-values and more experimental design because I think mm. that's going to solve more of our problems. Yeah, well, that's exactly my point when I enter these discussions online. I think that what we're doing is we're giving, we're not really training people in a solid understanding of what the real issue is and what you're describing is the real issue. And if you don't teach people what the real problem is, then they'll f- try just to have a quick fix. And it might be, you know, let's let's ban p-values from my articles and now I'm going to report only Bayes... Uh, factors or something is that journal still doing that yeah 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 they're still doing that yeah there's one journal um, basic and applied social psychology i think that uh, yeah that does this yeah but that's not really um solving the underlying problem and uh, the same with sample size we're seeing this more and more and you're describing a very real problem where people think okay i actually know what i'm doing trust me this is a good sample size for what i'm studying and then the editor will say mm. yeah but i've heard we need 250 people in each yeah. cell uh no, no, you need to know what you're doing, right? That's the important thing. And if you know what you're doing, then maybe 30 or 40 or whatever it is, that's fine. Uh, so there's no, you know, no number or some, some s- simple fix. You need to think and know what you're doing, yeah. And, and quite often on Twitter, you see someone, look at this study, and then at the end, N equals four, ha, ha, ha. But then if you're doing something like psychophysics... Four yes. is actually pretty good. So yes. I don't know. Four, the, the fourth person, the fourth person, is just a flagrant sop <laughs> to the big N people. Is it? You were fine with three. You're just going <laughs> overboard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, it yeah. really depends on what you're doing. So, so I think that's important to uh, keep in mind, and that's also my worry. So, um, if we don't, if we don't really. Um, address the the problem which is lack of understanding of some basic principles then you know jumping up from one bandwagon on another one isn't going to fix the issues we have yeah now, circling back to circling back to, to p values um when we're when we're looking at that what are the or what do you see sort of taking a balanced look the are the limits of p values that bayes factors actually help solve or help address well, so um, they do different things, right? I think that's important to realize. So they're, they're two tools to draw inferences from your data, but they come from slightly different 
uh, approaches. So the main thing that uh, a p-value is supposed to do is prevent you from fooling yourself when you draw a conclusion based on your data. And that's known as error control. So if you say, hey, look, I've discovered something, or I'm going to act as if I've discovered something, you shouldn't make a fool of yourself too often. And that's what they do pretty well. But um, then uh, what a Bayesian uh, approach allows you to do is really say, okay, I've, I've collected evidence for something. And that sounds like something you want to do as a scientist, collect evidence, right? But this p-value is actually never evidence. That's a little bit of a problem. So it will guide you through a line of studies that you're doing without making a fool of yourself, but you're never allowed to say, this data provides so much evidence for my theory. That's not allowed. So it's a, a little bit of a, well, let's say a, a philosophical uh, difference between the two approaches. The one is a guide for behavior. What should I do? Do I do a new study or don't I? And um, Bayesian statistics really allows you to quantify, I have 84% belief that this theory is true. So it really sounds like we should be uh, com combining bo both of them, I ideally speaking, for, for I many mean, circumstances. Yes, but you don't have to say ideally. There's no reason whatsoever to only take one approach. No reason whatsoever, except maybe that somebody will say, um, yeah, you have to bend the p-values because they're evil. <laughs> but besides <laughs> that, you know, if you're just a free person and you can make up your own mind, you can do both. There's no problem. You already do multiple things. You probably report something and then an effect size, right? That's another statistic that's useful to draw inferences from your data. So you can do all, you can do a p-value and an effect size and a base vector and you get everything, sure. I, that's sort of my advice. I would say throw everything at your data and um, if everything aligns, that's sort of what you would expect if you design a good study and you're really, you know, you, you're right. All these inferences should tell you the same sort of thing. I think that's a great approach because uh, I think now it's a great stage... approach unless an editor takes exception with it and starts throwing rocks at you. No, but I've, I've, I've tried what this a number What is this sorcery? Take it out. No, no one's objected. Um, <laughs> I've done this. We did this with our paper, James, the um, uh, HIV and Worry. And we I actually... know. I helped you but... write it, you donkey. And we, and we, used, we, used, there. Da we used Daniel's uh, script to, to do our T-tests, the perfect T-test script. Ah, and uh, and the, 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 those figures that that you uh, that you call the uh, the slug plots, James. That's uh, that, the that's, slug plots. Yes, yes. they're awful. Yeah. <laughs> so so you use the script. That's I, very I, nice. I, so that's that's from a blog post, right? Uh, it's called the perfect yeah. test, and and it and that's really the approach that I sort of would recommend. So it gives you everything, right? You just plug in the numbers, and the script auto generates uh, interpretations of this data from a frequentist perspective and a Bayesian perspective, and it even does robust st statistics. You get everything. Look at your data from all different ways, and uh, yeah, then you combine it and you can report it. I'm sure there will be no problem, and if there's an editor that has a problem with it, it's a bad editor. You'll get them. Okay, move on to the next journal. Yeah. And I think nowadays, um, considering that all journals are now now online, I, I think there's no excuse. I, I think all journals should basically ban word limits on methods, mm -hmm. methods and results, mm -hmm. um, because there's just no excuse. And quite, I think a lot of people's hesitations from going into this is going, oh, I'm not going to fit. I'm going to have to actually spend time explaining what base factors are, which which, which is reasonable. Um, I'm going to have to explain time interpreting it. 
And I think that's actually limiting people from doing this because we're mm. at the stage now where, where effect sizes are pretty much accepted. You can ask someone, hey, when you're reviewing a paper, you should probably add an effect size to your F test or to your T test. And people are like, okay, that's fine. Um, and yeah. it's completely accepted. But, but if, you I, can, if you can ask for someone, someone to do it without specifying what it is, mm-hmm. there's a common assumption. Mm. There you go. I don't say it doesn't say D anywhere. doesn't say F anywhere. What's going on? I go, oh, sorry, I'll put those in. Um, you don't even need to specify Hmm. Oh, that's 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 normal. Yeah. Well, maybe some explanation somewhere. That's also fine. And you can you can pick which one you interpret more than others, uh, but you can report everything. And I would say that's fine because a base vector doesn't give you error control. So you don't really know. You know, you can have pretty big error rates, uh, which is problematic, right? If you say if you use a base vector as sort of a way to say, oh, look, I've discovered something. The hypothesis is probably true which you shouldn't do. You shouldn't say make yes or no statements, but people will because that's the way our minds work, right? We're very dichotomous creatures. We, will, we want to say yes, there's something. Then uh, the probability that you're fooling yourself is actually can be pretty high. But if you combine uh, p-values and base vectors, well, then you've got this check that you're not fooling yourself and you can quantify the probability of a theory. Well, great. Best of both worlds. So we solved it, right? And no fighting. No fixed. fighting about this whole it's thing. It's done. It's just so easy. Do, do. Why are we fighting yeah. about it? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> you know? I'll tell you, we can, I'll tell you, let's, 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 let's fight about something then because, I mean, we don't want to waste this golden opportunity for okay. conflict. All right. Um, <laughs> no, I wanted to ask, I wanted to ask you a specific, a specific frequentist question. How important is the difference between student and welsh's t <laughs> well you know that's that's a small difference but i what i find interesting there is that uh, it's one of those situations where statisticians all statisticians agree that students t test is not a good default and that's something that has never gotten into you know our curricula uh, when we teach stats, right. we always say students do this. But if you look in the literature, there's no doubt. Now, what I like to do is take these things that never made it into psychology for some reason. So that's really my field, right? But I probably, it's, it's in, in more fields than just psychology. But I like to take these things and then try to argue in a very convincing, accessible manner. Look, this is something we probably want to do. And uh, so this paper that you're uh, referring to is really saying students t-test is not the good default. And there are a lot of statistics programs like R, um, which uh, you love, James, right? R, statistical software. <laughs> you know, the great oh, software, it's me, it's me, free. All right. Yeah, it's my me, it's me favorite thing in the whole world. <laughs> so Thanks that would, very much. I add you to the long list of people harassing me to change sorry. my terrible habits. <laughs> but that will by default give you Welsh's t-test. So, so I have a blog post about yeah. explaining the difference between, and you'll see that this, this blog post gets like, you know, I don't know, tens of thousands of hits because everybody's like, hey, why, why does R, R actually have this uh, weird default? And they try to understand it. And then I say, yeah, it makes sense. We should all have this as a default. So I, I like those kind of things that you take something and you're like, hey, you know, we can very easily improve a little bit by just making this small change. That's sort of what I try to do. And... Um sort of related to that is this um, I, I think one of the things which originally drew me to, to Bayesian statistics mm. was uh, I think I read a blog post like a long long time ago which, which now I, I see was made a false assumption which is Bayes can prove the null and I'm mm-hmm. like that's mm-hmm. interesting and then I mm-hmm. sort of went down from there um, we, yeah. we know now that Bayes can't prove the null um, and it, it can only provide evidence for it and even that has some caveats there um, mm. but um, but 
I, I saw uh, this um, this toster mm-hmm. test mm-hmm. that um, that you've now released as an R package as an add-on to Jamovi mm-hmm. as well. Can you explain this uh, toster and, and what it does? Sure, sure. So this is really one of those things that I think why. So this is an approach to not show that the null is true because we can never do this. Bayesian statistics can't do it. I mean, it would be lovely if we could do it, but it's not possible. But there are some other things we can do. So what a Bayesian, what Bayesian statistics would do is say the, the null is more likely to be true than something else that I've specified here. And in this frequentist perspective, which is known as equivalence testing, well, if you test the null, you're saying, let's test whether the effect that I'm observing is surprisingly large if I assume that the null hypothesis is true. That's traditional null hypothesis testing. And with a very minor switch, you can test whether an effect is surprisingly smaller than anything you care about. So instead of having a null hypothesis that's zero, you can have a hypothesis you're testing about of an effect size of, let's say, a Cohen's D of 0.5. That's a medium effect size. Then you say, well, that's something I can study. Let's test whether the data that I have is surprisingly closer to zero, to the absence of an effect. And you're doing exactly the same. So the the TOST basically means two one-sided tests. So it's just a t-test, two one-sided t-tests. That's what you're doing. And then all of a sudden you can make much more informed inferences. You don't have to say, hey, this is non-significant. Now the the, uh, null hypothesis is true. It doesn't have to be true. It can be that the effect is sort of smallish or whatever, right? So you get much more nuanced interpretations of uh, your data with such a really simple, trivial test. And then I wonder, why why isn't this just taught alongside the t-test in the second year of your bachelor or something, you know? It's so simple and it's so mm. useful. Yeah, it's uh, there's no there's no there's no equivalent. It's not even like a, a you're essentially redeploying the thing that's already there rather exactly. than adding something. Yeah, the, the 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 advance in that sense is theoretical rather than technical. Exactly. You already know yeah, everything a, you need to know. Yeah. I've noticed that you've applied it for the uh, for the t-test, and you've also used it for correlations and for meta-analysis. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. In principle, you can test all sorts of effects. Any analysis you can uh, that you test for the null, right? If you have null hypothesis, you can make this uh, null the the hypothesis you want to reject. You can choose any kind of effect size. For example, you can always say, "Hey, is this data surprising?" If I assume an effect size of zero or an effect size of whatever it is. So then you can always use it. doesn't really matter. All frequentist tests allow you to use it. Yeah. So correlations. I mean, I just explained the basic things that most people use. And then, you know, if it gets taken up and it looks like it's pretty popular already, uh, the paper's not even yet out, but I mean, people are still u- already using this software. Um, well, then maybe we'll do it for F-tests and explain that in the future. You know, if this is popular, then uh, you can extend it quite easily. Yeah, but isn't that interesting that there are these things out there and nobody told you about this and it's so easy and super useful? What are statistics teachers doing? Yeah, uh, it's because I think I remember reading historically this was uh, sort of in the 70s. It was quite popular, then it sort of dropped off a bit. Is that, is that, how, it's, yeah. is that how it works? Well, it's one of those things that's still very popular in uh, uh, medicine. So uh, there they very often want to do a, create a new drug. And it has to be just as good as the old drug, but it can't be any worse. 
So then they test yeah. is the difference between yeah. the two drugs non inferiority, exactly right? non inferiority trials. That's how it's called. So they want to say, well, we made a new drug. It's just as good, or at, at least negligibly different from what there already was, but now we can sell ours and we will make a lot of money. So this test is used there all the time, um, but it just never crossed to psychology. I, I have no clue why. Somebody, like last week, somebody was asking me this question. Why aren't we using this? Uh, as if there, the reason was there is something wrong with it, right? There must be a reason because it's so useful. There must be a reason. The only reason is we're, we are pretty clueless in what we're doing. You know, if you look back 80 years, yeah, people were pretty crappy, right? But we're the same, but you have to look from uh, 2200 or something, you know? You look back at what we're doing, they'll be like, oh man, they were so clueless. So this is just us learning very basic things and improving. What what else what else is out there that we're not taking full advantage of then? Well, you got any? We got any more fun stuff coming up? What else is? Uh, what else is going into well, the Well, well, so this is sort of what I try to do, right? So another paper that I wrote a couple of years ago um, is about sequential analysis. So we all know about p hacking, right? P hacking, where you look at the data, you analyze the data, you look at it, you collect some more, you look at it again, you collect some more, you look at it again. Well, you're not supposed to do that because that's p hacking. So your error rate is inflating. But it turns out again that in medicine they do this all the time because actually there it's considered unethical not to check whether a drug is working. And when you know it's working, then you have to give it to everybody because otherwise they're going to die, right? So it's ethical, an ethical okay. requirement to look at your data multiple times. So some people thought, well, let's figure out how we can do this without messing up, without inflating our error rate and p-hacking. And in essence, the simplest way, if you don't want to read the paper, that's fine. You can just do a Bonferroni correction. You know this? Bonferroni correction? Yeah. yeah well, let's say you're mm. going to look yeah, at your data yeah, five times, right? You want to take five looks at the data after every workday for a week. Well, you can do so. You adjust your alpha level. You can do a Bonferroni correction. It's a little bit too conservative, but hey, why not? Problem solved. And now all of a sudden you can look at your data mm. every day. Um, what do you what do you make of the the Bayesian case for uh, updating over time? Yeah, so Bayesian statistics allows you to do the same thing, and and it's very yes. it's very useful. And well, but there's a little bit of a discussion. So we we refer to Bayesian statistics, but it's not one unified thing. Yeah. So there yeah, are many. We'll go on that. Yeah, there <laughs> there are many different ways in which people do Bayesian statistics, and they differ in things. So some Bayesians will say multiple testing is not an issue, and some Bayesians will say, well, it's a little bit of an issue. So it depends also in in that um, sort of perspective what you think, uh, you know, who you want to listen to. Opinions uh, on this matter change. So some people say it's no problem. Other people say, well, it is a little bit of a problem, and they give some guidelines on how to. Um, you know, not go crazy with looking at your data because you might fool yourself, right? So, yeah. Yeah. So what, do you, what, do you, well, what do you fool on that spectrum? So there's some very nice papers by uh, uh, Felix Schoenbrot, for example, um, together with uh, Erik-Jan Wagenmakers. Oh, yeah. um, so they're pretty, you know, I, I have some friends and they're Bayesians. There's nothing wrong with them. They're very nice people. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and they've... <laughs> You know, really, they're just you know. They they have they have their own clubs, of course. There's towns in this country where they dare to tread. But, oh, but they have written some excellent papers exactly about this, examining the mix of yeah. uh, you know, yeah. So so that's I've, pretty cool. 
pretty good stuff. If I have to do if I have to do another four hour experiment, um, I've I found those. I had to I read those a while ago in the hopes of uh, because. If if you have a, a long experiment with a lot of internal conditions where you expect things to be reasonably reliable, mm-hmm. um, every per, every person that I ran in an, a, the last experiment in my PhD, every person that I ran took four hours yeah, and was yeah. it was exhausting as well because there was an awful lot of stuff to do. So the idea that you can run people sequentially after yeah. a a no, certain really. initial amount. Is uh, I imagine that if you're paying for fMRI time exactly. on an ad hoc basis, exactly. you'd feel exactly the same way. And you know, it's even um, the case that whenever you use it, whenever you use it, you'll be more efficient. On average, it will just always make you more efficient. It's, I mean, it's so crazy that we don't use this. It was developed during the Second World War. And there's this guy called Walt who uh, thought of the sequential method first. And he couldn't publish his research during the wartime because it was so efficient for the war effort. Because they could, you know, they have to test ammunition and rockets, and they can only test them by blowing them up, basically, to see if they work or not. So this is a much more efficient test, but they couldn't publish it because then, of course, the Germans and the Japanese would also have access to this. So this is a statistic (laughs) that's so useful and so efficient that during wartime, nobody could use it. And now we can use it, but we don't. It's crazy. It's crazy, really. I can't really, I don't know. I just don't understand why we do this. I think because nobody knows exactly how it works and we're extremely conservative when it comes to statistics. We just do what other people do. We don't think because we're uncertain. But that's one of the benefits, benefits of learning statistics a little bit. Then you know what you're doing and you feel confident to break some of the rules without thinking, oh, am I now p hacking? No, no, you're not. It's fine. You know, just pre-register your plan that's smart always uh, and then you can do much more efficient designs and i find that really yeah. interesting there's another, the, absolutely nothing like the appeal to uh i'm i'm right because this is a carefully thought out position that'll make uh, especially if you get a blowhard who's looking at mm. it before it's being published mm. there's absolutely nothing like falling back on big racks of facts rather than some conjecture bullshit it, doesn't it feel um, much better than falling back on this is how we do it because this is how we do it that's how we absolutely do it. and it's there's a certain kind of thrill as well because i i like the idea that someone out there might be disappointed in themselves and having a <laughs> terrible day because they've um because they've you know they've brought a knife to a gunfight i i'd rather enjoy that's I, obviously that's not very noble but i think a lot of people enjoy that at <laughs> all I'm going to be so right on your ass, son. It's going to be hilarious. <laughs> oh man. Um I was going to I was going to ask you uh, something peripherally related to that. Um sure. And then I immediately forgot what it was cuz I was too amused. That All will right. happen. <laughs> Let's take a quick well, break maybe. and uh we'll be back soon. Welcome back to Everything Hurts. Today we are discussing 
James is uh, su- succeeding in his efforts of, of making making me laugh when we <laughs> when we come back. But we just um, if you do want to get in contact with us, uh, you can find us on Twitter at Hertz Podcast. We're also on Facebook. Um, uh, just search everything hurts. Uh, you can contact us, give us feedback, tell James to hair cut looks nice, give us episode topics, whatever you like. Um, and you can also follow our guest Daniel Larkins on Twitter. He is at Larkins. Very easy to uh, to, to find. Um, and Daniel also has a blog, the Twenty Percent Statistician, which is uh, DanielLarkins.blogspot. And if you just uh, Google that, I'm sure you'll find that very easily. And uh, yeah, thanks for all your comments online. It sounds like people are really digging back into the archives. We had uh, someone on Twitter, uh, Farid Anvari, telling us that he enjoyed our episode on failure. Now, that was a year ago. That was episode 10, where we discussed... Yeah, I was I, I, something I was about to bring up. We, we completely forgot to have a one-year anniversary. I, I, I reckon we need to do something special for episode 50. But we're, we've... Yeah, I think... Yeah, you know what? That That is... um. That's a better idea. What are we going to do for episode fifty? Yeah, well, we should do one live or something. Oh yeah, we could do that. That could that could sacrifice work. Sacrifice something. How do you have a special podcast? Ooh. Interview an alien. I, I don't know. Um, you you think of something? You're the sensible we one. We can we can do something like that. Uh, but yeah. So if you if you're new to the podcast, make sure you have a listen back to some of our old podcasts. Uh, there's about forty hours of, of solid gold in there if you dig back. And Daniel, I know you've been listening back through some of the episodes. Any any particular ones stick out for you? Oh, well, let's see. I think in general, I mean, I didn't say this yet, but in general, I think just they should listen to everything. I'm not I'm not kidding. Um because I think that the way that you talk about science, it's just it's just great. I want every young scholar to just hear you talk so casually about all these norms that I think are excellent, right? So your attitudes about data sharing or how you have to be a scientist. People should just listen to all of it because there are not enough people out there who are communicating these kinds of norms. And I think it's really important yeah, for young scholars. So yeah. let's really listen to everything. Um, just, well, that's there's it. a ringing endorsement for yeah, you. That no. is that is why we started um, because, uh, and the people have probably heard me say this before, is because there's plenty of podcasts about science that's a hi, I'm I'm from NPR and this is the science of radiators. And then they cut into someone who's... Uh, well, I've been studying radiators for forty years, and it's a, it's a thing. It's a, it's about it's about a specific topic. It's organized into episodes, but there's nothing about the internal culture of science. It's not really scientists talking. Yeah, um, and, and people need to. Hear I didn't know about how much stuff. external relevance that would have, but there's an awful lot of scientists, and they're all. I I, I think. To, to, to some degree, at least, familiar with the experience of being alone in a shit situation where mm. there's no discussion about the parameters of what they do. There's no culture around yeah. that, even if it's sort of loudmouth Australian culture that you have vicariously. There's just not a there's no attempt to engage with stuff like that. So making it more normal was kind of. The idea, if there was one, because obviously, I mean, we did just start talking shit one day, but that is where they come from. So this uh, this, this episode, we are talking uh, p p values and base factors. And Daniel, I just want to ask you, when it comes to these sort of things, be it for p values or for base factors, what's what's kind of what's some of the worst piece of advice that you that you've heard or that you typically hear when it comes mm. to these things or how to approach st- Good statistical question. Inference? 
So the the worst advice that you can get about using the p values or base factors, you mean? Either, either, what one, um, one for each, perhaps. Well, I think really the the worst advice is if anybody tells you that there's a thing that they're promoting that will solve everything, that's wrong. That's not going to happen. So if somebody says use this because, don't trust them. And uh, also something that's very interesting is statisticians will always say what you really want to know. If they say that to you, right, as a researcher, they say, what, but, but what you really want to know is stop listening to them. Because really, they're statisticians and you're a researcher. You're pretty, you know, knowledgeable about what you more or less want to know. So, and the, the other thing is it's always followed by whatever they're promoting, right? The confidence intervals or effect sizes or Bayesian statistics or... So then, um, you know, also be very careful. So that would be my advice. When anybody is saying those kind of things, then be very careful. Don't listen to them. Um, but in general, you know, combining these things makes a lot of sense. Uh, then I had a, I had a question. So I, I saw you just put a, a very interesting preprint online. That's correct. Yes, yes, promoting base factors. And I wanted to know why. Why? What, what convinced you that this is something that you have to uh, communicate and teach other people? Well, I think the purpose of this preprint was more to look at an alternative to, to B-values. Uh, as we've been talking about, I think it's important to present both. And, it, the, the, I mean, the spirit of it wasn't really to, to bash, bash P-values per mm. se. And mm. I think a lot of people have sort of misinterpreted it in, in that way. And that, wasn't this, that, was, that was definitely wasn't Because this you're, entering, you're entering territory where there's no middle ground. Yeah, you yeah. To, so it's, you know. <laughs> yeah, so it's, 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 it's very tricky. And I think a lot of it comes down to that um, just discussions I have with people within my field within psychiatry. And they often think that P-values is the only way. And that in that sense, that mm-hmm. um, they have a, a, lot, a lot of misunderstandings about the P-values, um, particularly the base rate fallacy, where they're like, oh, look, look look at this result there's only a 5% chance this would happen by chance and these are like really senior people saying this kind of stuff and I'm like oh no that's not the way to do yeah, it yeah, yeah. so this was more looking yeah, at yeah. Uh, just at an, at an alternative way of, of doing things and presenting this um, more yeah, so for, just for that from point is actually that perfect had, that I've had with people um, so that was really the, the motivation behind it so I think that what you just mentioned uh, about this misinterpretation of uh, the probability that your theory is true or there's now a 5% probability, that's exactly why, indeed, people should know at least a little bit about Bayesian statistics because that's the way you get rid of that uh, mistake that people make. So I think that's, that is really important. Yeah, that's a good point. Mm. And I think as well is, I mean, uh, it's also looking at this idea that you can actually compare compare models as well. And I think that's that's a really interesting perspective of Bayesian statistics that you can actually set up um, you have this null model, you have an alternative model. Um, I mean, what, what, one of the weaknesses, particularly within JASP at the moment, is that the models are centered around null. I believe... Yeah, but they're, uh, they're going to fix it. They're going to fix that. They're working really hard. I saw a paper, yes. uh, a new yes. paper on um, uh, looking at uh, t-tests, on adjusting this thing, which will be implemented in JASP, yes, um, yes. from what I understand. Um, I was I was hang, hanging out with uh, AJ Wagenmakers, who was uh, working on Jasp last week somewhere in a beautiful mansion somewhere in England, and uh, we were having uh, some drinks, and he was talking about this stuff. It will be uh, great, and I think that's a very important uh, improvement. Yeah. Mm. So they're still getting better as well. These uh, not just the programs, but also the, the challenge for Bayesian statistics sometimes is they have to develop this stuff. So this is not really crystal clear how you're going to do it. And more importantly, what a psychologist really wants there, right? Maybe mathematically it's possible, but then how do you get 
uh, a nice model that you can define. And they're also thinking about that stuff. And that's really important. Those will be, be big improvements. Yeah. Mm. Mm. I think on that as well, I really like the idea that you can actually, um, uh, just the idea that you can interpret it as an, as an odds ratio, that you're actually comparing these two models. And it's just super easy to interpret. You have these two models and you can actually say, okay, it looks like our, our null model is, um, uh, is, is 10 times more likely than the alternative given the data. And I quite like that. I think yeah. that's, uh, yeah. in, in, in many circumstances, that can be quite interesting uh, perspective. Yeah. In, some so, fields, in some fields, odds ratios are, are used quite a lot, right? Sort of the default effect size. In, in medicine, yeah. quite often, odds yeah. ratios yeah. So is, then, is bread and butter. Then it should be quite a, kind of easy for people to get into them. Yeah, good points, good points. Perfect. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, in health epi, it's always the drop dead rate, yeah. you know. It's the thing that always makes it to the news. There's a lot of the time it's centrally presented. How many of these people are going to die if they eat that amount of bacon? <laughs> OR equals point, uh, 1.31. And this ridiculous, this, this thing, this interval slammed right up against the very edge of zero. So uh, everyone runs out and uh, throws their bacon in the garbage. And- so yeah, they, they they get more press like that than any yeah. other way. And having to create this alternative model, I think that's also a great uh, important benefit of thinking in a Bayesian sense. You don't really need it, or at least it, if you do Bayesian statistics, then you really need it, right? Then you have to do it. But you can also use it in a frequentist sense. So if you think about statistical power, then you actually have to define your alternative hypothesis. What are you talking about? If it's not zero, tell me what it is. Oh, you expect this effect size? Good. Now we can talk about the probability that you actually observe this effect. So that's already thinking about your alternative hypothesis. And I think that's very important. If you're clueless, a p-value can help, right? It will say, is this noise or is this a signal? Good. It's a good start if you have really nothing else to go on. But it's like the lowest threshold. It's the first step of doing research. And then you want to move on to something else, maybe thinking about, so if it's not zero, then what is it? Can I have a theoretical model that predicts some sort of effect size? And and Bayesian statistics really nicely uh, makes you think about those things as well. I mean, again, frequentist statistics will allow you to do it, but it's just intrinsic part of doing Bayesian statistics. Yeah. And that's one thing I like about actually learning different perspectives um, is that it just opens your eyes for how you can approach statistical inference in general. Uh, I know when I started learning about meta-analysis, which we're going to um, cover in our second um, second episode, uh, it just just doing it taught me so much, particularly around uh, around effect sizes and the importance of effect sizes. And that's something that I wouldn't have gotten just from reading textbooks about effect sizes within within a, a purely frequentist perspective. Um, and I, I guess that's a lot behind um, this, um, this this book that came out from um, from Cumming mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. about um, what, what was the title of that, that book? I, I think the new statistics. I think that's, that's what it's the called. the one. The, yeah. Yes. It, 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 it so. It has great stuff on uh, maintenances. I mean, really, if you haven't worked through it or read through it, it's uh, it's one of the yeah books that really helped me understand all this stuff as well. It's a really good book. Hmm. There you go. Stick that in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> well, because yeah, it's one been... of the things that you can actually understand without having a very heavy uh, statistics background or math background. I mean, uh, I suck at math, but uh, I can understand this and it's explained at the level that I need. So, um, yeah, I can highly recommend that. It's a good book. 
Mm. And I, I like it as well because it, it came uh, with that spreadsheet, which uh, did uh, all, the, all the demonstrations. I, I couldn't believe the stuff that you can do with Excel. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing. But you, it's you've amazing. also done a few. Uh, you've also done a few things uh, for your paper um, on effect sizes uh, for t-tests and ANOVAs. Um, you that also came yes. with a companion script, which I've used to death myself um, before I got more familiar with R. Yes, it, it was fantastic. Yes. And- um, and even the equivalence uh, equivalence testing paper also comes with a spreadsheet. So it also comes with an R package because I'm now totally convinced that R is the future and that everybody will use it. But for the people who are slowly catching up or, you know, might not be there, I think really what you want to do is make things accessible to everybody. And it's just the situation that there's a large group of people out there that didn't get into R yet or they might not. So then a spreadsheet... I know it doesn't have a good reputation. It's not a very hip thing. But, uh, I mean, this effect size paper, mm. uh, I think it's reached like 600 citations or more in the last four years. And really, the spreadsheet is the reason. So uh, I'm I'm uh, I'm full of respect for spreadsheets. They're just very useful and people want them apparently. So, yeah. And, and coming... And it, it, all mm. comes down, it all comes down to accessibility. Uh, mm. I, I think that's one of the things which was limiting... Uh, first, firstly, equivalence testing. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, uh, uh, Bayesian inference as well. Yeah, um, we, we have R, but that, uh, but now we have we have JASP. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, uh, just, yeah, you just want things that are accessible either through through point and click mm-hmm. or through these uh, or through these spreadsheets. Yeah. Um, one thing spreadsheets do amazingly. If you ever do meta science or fraud detection stuff, I find myself going back and using them and resenting myself slightly but it's a tool for the job and the reason for this is you can lay out visually everything that you're looking at in labeled in labeled individual boxes you can make sequential changes and observe the pattern of every intermediate step happening in a visual uh visual interface that is just the numbers themselves now, obviously, in any other platform, you can make graphs. Uh, you can you can try and calculate distributions. You can report anything you want. But the idea that you can have everything that's there is that we do this with um, Sprite and Grim stuff sometimes. If you've got a reasonably small sample, all of the things are here. This is calculated. This is calculated. This is calculated. We we jam all that together. Um, we just rack out a quick ANOVA by doing the things in the cells, which takes a couple of minutes. So you, you just copy, you know, square this, turn that upside down, whatever. Bash it all together. There's the thing. There's the outcome. Have a sort of have a table lookup thing at the end, and then you go right to the top and you change the eight into a nine, and you go, oh right, I turn the eight into the nine, and I can see the twelve consequential changes after that immediately. Now, here's the part. Now you've got to explain that to someone you're working with. Sorry? Yeah, I think you have to be a pragmatist as a scientist, right? If, if a tool works, you should use it. It doesn't really matter, uh, you know, even if it's Excel. There's, there's just a tool that sometimes works best for you. Don't feel bad about it. Use it. You can do great stuff. I never feel bad. <laughs> I mean, just sort of in general. It's just that alone. you're yeah. slightly so embarrassed when you mention Excel, but otherwise you don't feel bad yet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's just that look it it annoys me in so many other contexts for so many other reasons. Mm. And um 
you know, it's just a closed closed software like that as well. Especially if you 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 grow up in Australia where computers were a little bit behind everything else. So, you know, yes, ah, the office install doesn't work. We don't have the right code. We can't open the file. Bring yeah. me Bill Gates. I'm gonna cut his head off with a comb. But the accessibility uh, is a good point of uh, Bayesian statistics. It was really, really too difficult to do it maybe 20 years ago. And now we can we can use it. And again, be pragmatic, use it, try it out and, uh, you know, see if you like it, if it helps you. Um, that's really what uh, you should try to do. Now, yeah. One thing I want to I cover with you, Daniel, is uh, I want to hear a bit about your workflow. I mean, it, it seems like you're pretty... Uh, productive when it comes to these papers, when it comes to um, putting together this Coursera course, um, uh, lots of speaking, uh, all, all places around. I, I had uh, conference jealousy once again with this uh, conference that you were at last weekend. So I just want to, I'm just uh, curious about um, how you actually set up your day, any sort of tools you use, apps or strategies. How, how do you actually do science? Hmm. Well, well, I think that one of the important things, and so, sorry, James, but it has to be said again and again and again, is that um, uh, R is a great tool to, to play around with this sort of stuff. So, so I just play around. That's really what I think I do. I try to understand things by playing around with them. And then you would be surprised how easy it is actually to come across something that somebody hasn't really looked at because we approach things not from a very statistical perspective but from an applied perspective and then we have applied questions and very often these applied questions weren't really dealt with in statistics because what does a statistician care about these things but we care about them so that's sort of what I do I play around with practical issues I have and then I try to figure out if there's some easy solution and what I then often do is write a blog post about it I really like that because um, I just float the idea out there and then I can track by the number of hits that a blog post gets whether this is an idea that uh, more people have some use for or not. So some blog posts maybe get like 2,000 hits and then it's over. Sure, fine, some people liked it but it's not a big deal. And some blog post gets ten thousands of 10,000 hits and then you're like, okay, so this is something people care about. Let's turn this into a paper maybe because then it will reach more people. Yeah. So that's that's what I use this blog yeah. for. I can highly recommend it. By, you know, preprints are one way, but that's actually already too formal. So before I go all this step to make a preprint out of something, I just like to blog about it and see if people care about something. And sometimes this is you're what surprised. I'm doing with Sprite literally right now mm -hmm. is working through putting putting worked examples out in individual blog posts, and yeah. especially look when you enter the data science kind of space if someone's spotted something that you haven't they will tell you exactly and i've had this in, in I've had this fairly so, short order yeah i've had this so often with blog blog posts as well right but then it's a tiny thing and you're perfectly fine with somebody saying hey wait you missed something important here it's already more frustrating if you've gotten an entire paper and then people say, well, you missed this and this oh, and this and this. And you're like, way ah, worse. shit. Way worse. So spread yeah, it out. Look, we still have that. It's, it's, it's still that cachet that uh, 
uh, a paper is a, a completed object that exactly. stays completely static from now until the end of time. And if you fill it full of stuff that in an ideal world you would have changed. But it's horrible. Then, yeah. um, it's horrible. Yeah, and if you this have, is what if you I, I blog, noticed. You, very... can just, you can either update it or in worst case, I, I mean, I had this person a couple of weeks ago and he, he wanted to respond to one of my blogs. And he said, yeah, yeah, this is, uh, you're making a point here, but it's totally wrong and I'll show you why it's wrong. I said, oh, sure, sure, write a blog post about it. So this person wrote a blog post about it and then some people said uh, no no that doesn't make any sense right i mean this of course i'm giving an example where i was right but it works the other way around but and this person <laughs> this blog is now gone this person just deleted the blog you can do this you can do this if you make a mistake you can just say oh oh it's gone it's gone no worries it's gone or or in a blog if you make an error you can just update it it's so lovely you can just say, okay, it's fixed. Thank you very much, whoever pointed it out, because you make errors all the time. Yeah, and then if you've done this, you can let them hang around for a year, these blog posts or something, until the worst stuff is out of there. And then you write it up. Now, I, I, That's really one of my favorite sort of discoveries of this mix of blogging, turning it into a preprint and submitting it. Yeah, it's great. For some weird reason, if you ask people to write a paper or read a paper and give comments... People don't do it because it's work. But if you write a blog post and ask people to read it, you don't have to ask. It feels like procrastination to read a, a blog post. But you still get all the feedback. So it's it really works like a charm. Well, it's look, the, the, vast, the vast majority of formal literature could be replaced with something more informal and still retain the vast majority of the technical information unless you've done unless it's the specifics of an experiment where you need to pack things in good and tight then i don't see what you lose with the environment of informality and obviously i i write super informally a lot of the time because it's the only way i can do it really quickly it allows you to have proper access to it as well but the the it, it opens up access for other people and what do you know shit starts getting done faster uh, i i what one thing if you've got if anyone's got a favorite paper i noticed this a while ago but i don't think we've put this on the podcast if you've got a favorite paper like a seminal foundational interesting paper that's in your area Go and look at the start by impressive scientist Malone and see how many people are thanked in the preparation thing for the paper or look in the acknowledgements. Now, every paper I've ever read where I thought, this is seriously impressive and I wouldn't change a lot of the stuff and I feel quite, I like the fact that there's this didactic paper telling me what to do. Go and read the paper and find out that that person had eight separate discussions with eight other clever people to the extent where they felt like it should be mentioned. That is the precursor, the, the formal communicative pattern thing. That is the precursor to someone leaving an extended comment on the bottom of your blog. The fact that people are going out formally soliciting these things, forming their own research relationships, etc. We just have a better platform for doing exactly the same shit yep. now. Yep. And, and that's some, that's what it is. And people, I love a good acknowledgement. I like finding out who's talking to each other and how their ideas are influencing each other. It's mm. it's cool. Some people are making great use of this as well. So I, I really like the Data Collada blog. I don't know if you read that, but it's by uh, Uri Simonson oh, yeah. and yeah, for sure. Simmons and Leif Nelson. And, and they uh, ask yeah. people to comment on their blog before they post it. So there's very often some people that will... Uh, uh, receive a link and then you can read it. We just had it uh, like uh, recently, and uh, and many people actually, like maybe sometimes six or seven people will comment on it, and some people can leave a reply. I mean, really, that's high quality stuff. 
I think that some papers are actually not uh, commented on so thoroughly than uh, some of their blog posts. So if uh, I have to say yeah, about the course. scientific quality, I would say uh, this blog has higher scientific quality than most of the papers that I uh, read, to be honest, right? Mm. So it's just very cool yeah. that you can do this now. Blogs are great. Yeah, I would, I would have no hesitation citing um, an individual blog post from that site uh, as long as uh, as long as they didn't get yelled at by a section editor. Fuck it. Come on, you know you know who wrote it. That's um that's fine. It's peer reviewed. Well, it's been it's been read by fifteen hundred people who will scream if it's wrong. So um they didn't. It's yeah. There's a there's you you start to. The, the formal capturing of all these concepts is starting to bleed out because we have things that mesh well together now. But, but just remember that the only way to do commentary is to write a formal thing to an editor and then wait 16 months for them to fucking reply or something, 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 something. Yeah. Which is funny because I've <laughs> ah, I have a blog post on that coming up for all the things that's been annoying me about that particular debate okay. um you've been you've been reasonably active as a as a are you a are you a methodological terrorist which which of which one of the new bad people are you a second well, stringer a, a bully replication police god's chosen soldiers think, in a great jihad oh, yeah yes. he's definitely he's definitely a bully in a jihadi but a are you also a terrorist are you a McCarthyist I, I, I saw um this most incredible screenshot from uh from Chris Chambers's um, book the seven. Oh, Chris has got all the. Yes. Chris has got all the good ones. I, think, I got. I, think I got needs, the, the, You need the a list. shout out to the book, yeah. uh, guys. You need to shout yeah. out to the book. The, the, we'll, we'll put a link to it. The seven. The seven sin. Seven deadly sins of psychology. And there was this incredible quote yeah. that I read. Um, that um, uh, and, I, and I quote Dan Gilbert from Harvard University likened Schnall's battle to the plight of Rosa Parks, and he referred to some university. Uh, he referred to some psychologists who conducted or supported replications as bullies, replication police, second stringers, McCarthyists, and God's chosen soldiers in a great jihad. Others accused oh. the so-called replicators of being Nazis, fascist, and mafia. Wow. I, 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 oh, so yeah, I don't was... have these in my list. That's not. I thought I had a complete list, but there's at least three more there. Yeah. Ah, so, shameless little bullies, vigilantes, self-appointed data police, mean, shrill, angry, nothing. That's kind of an aggregate one. Uh, scientific McCarthyite, second stringers, whiner, the Stasi, destructor critics, and methodological terrorists. And what do they do? They engage in vicious, chilling behavior because they're like an angry freezer or something. Um, <laughs> and their whole their whole modus operandi is unmoderated personal attacks. Yeah, yeah. But so, um, I haven't. I've, Chris has got more than me, bastard! I have to so this, copy this down. started Tendo sort of. Um, we we um, Brian Nosek and I edited a, a special issue of a journal where people pu- uh, published replications, and uh, yeah, this, yeah, yeah, this yeah. was interesting. And and this is sort of where this uh, specific comment came from. Um, and uh, it was very educational, I have to say. I mean, it's only a couple of years ago, maybe three, four years ago, that this uh, special issue yeah. came out. But one of the naive things that we tried to do was treat a replication study like any other study. So that in first instance, we thought, well, the study will be published and that's it. People don't need to comment on it. It's just a study. You don't get to comment on every follow-up study that was done on your research. But um, yeah, this didn't really... Uh, work out because apparently replication studies are slightly different than um, yeah than normal research up up until now in any case so that was interesting yeah 
Yeah. What's well, the thing? If it, if it if if they all worked beautifully, none of them would be unmoderated personal attacks. That would be the the you know, that would be the splendid work of a bunch of uh, great genius people with top attention to detail who could recognize good ideas when they saw them in the first place. But uh, you know, every time you are, I'm I'm pretty sure you didn't have a lot of process complaints from people where the replications came back and were, were good. It's about context, James. The context. Well, that's all the time we have for for today's episode. Uh, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to Everything Hurts uh, on using your favorite uh, podcast app, just so you don't miss any future episodes. And uh, also make sure you check out some of our old episodes as well. Uh, there's over forty of them, so there's a lot to a lot to go through. Um, uh, next episode, we we're going to be continuing uh, our chat with Daniel with part two, and we're going to be covering meta analysis. So, bye for now, and we'll be back soon. Bye. Bye, kids.